Luke 15. This is one of the most famous parables in the Bible. And, uh, and I've preached on it before. I've done it in three weeks. We're doing it in one. Uh, that does not mean it's going to be a three-time sermon. It just means I, I'm not going to say everything I possibly could say about this. So um, have no fear, I think. So. All right, this is, uh, of course, within the context of uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 15. So I'm going to start my reading there and then jump down to the parable itself. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. 
his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to Yourself. Rekindle Your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell Your fragrance. Taste Your sweetness. Let us love You and hasten to Your side. And accomplish this through Your Word and by the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was right before Easter when I talked with one of my best friends who was in my wedding party. He was one of my, one of my men that stood by my side. And he gave me the bad news. His daughter, whom I held when she was a baby, was approaching her 18th birthday on Resurrection Day. And she informed them that on that day, It would be the last day that she would be in that house. That her intention was to leave that very day and strike out on her own. He's not the only pastor who's heard that. My mind goes back to Jack Miller, pastor at New Life Presbyterian Church, professor at Westminster Seminary, whose daughter Barbara said, hasta la vista, mom and dad. I can't imagine anything more heartbreaking than to hear those words. My daughter has been visiting friends for a couple of days, and I'm sad. And I know she comes home on Tuesday. But I miss her. I can't imagine what it is like for my friend to not see his daughter and to not know what she's doing and how she's doing. And I think that sets us up for this particular parable. I think some of you have felt those emotions of those fractured relationships, the people you wish you could see but you can't. Or maybe the people you wish you couldn't see, didn't see, but do. I don't know. But the big idea is that Jesus reveals the self-righteous are lost and need to repent. That's a lot of what's going on within the context of this particular chapter and this particular parable. Let us see that, first of all, Jesus recognizes the sinfulness of sinners who repent. 
You see, the, the, the indication seems to be from the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes is that Jesus was somehow clueless as to how treacherous those people he was dining with really were. Then as Jesus gets to this, it's his third parable on this subject, before we saw a lost sheep and, you know, sheep wander and Coins get lost accidentally. But here he kind of really kind of lays it on the line and reveals that he understands the sinfulness of the tax collectors and the sinners. First off, he gives us this picture of the younger son who wants his inheritance early. Some of us might not think much of that, but of course within that particular culture that Jesus lived and breathed, we see that this indicates most likely animosity towards his father because you did not receive your inheritance until your father died. And so it's as if he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But can I have my stuff now? Can I have my inheritance now? Can I have my property now? You see, there's no indication within this parable that the son is in financial trouble. It's not, Dad, I've gotten into some debt and I need some help. That's not what the picture is. It's not something like, Dad, I want to start a new business. Can I have some of my inheritance to begin as seed money, so to speak? No, he wants his stuff. Now, most of the wealth in that day was in the form of land. And so he gave him his portion of land. And so what happens is over the course of the next few days is that he begins to exchange this land for money. He sells the remaining years, so to speak, upon this land. And it's not enough that he's gotten his inheritance. But we see, secondly, that he moves to what Jesus calls a far country. And so this indicates something of not just his animosity towards his father, that it's not enough to move down the street or across town. He must leave town. Not only that, he must leave the country. He's not only, not only has animosity or hatred, anger toward his father, but also toward his people and towards his faith. This is an angry young man who is fleeing. He's not content simply to leave the house and start out in his own little apartment somewhere. He wants nothing to do with his culture, with his people, with his own family. See, that was, that was the hard part of when my friend heard his daughter say this. Because it wasn't just, you know, I, I, I'm not very good at school and I've got this learning disability and I'm just going to drop out and get my own place and start to make my life in the world. It was, I met a man online in another state and I'm leaving Not just the town, I'm leaving the state and I'm moving in with him. I'm done with your morals, mom and dad. I'm done with your faith. I'm done with just about everything about you. That's incredibly painful to hear from your child. And that's essentially what the father hears from his son. I want nothing to do with you and what you represent. 
But it's not just that. He goes to this far country and essentially he scatters his money far and wide in what is essentially a very wasteful fashion. He doesn't buy a business or land and work it out as a farm. He spends it all. I cannot help but think of um, the 30 on 30 ESPN special, Broke, which was about broke athletes who came from nothing usually and got millions of dollars and uh, shortly after they retire, sometimes they didn't even retire yet, they're broke because they waste it. They, they buy car after car after car. They collect expensive cars. They buy all kinds of jewelry, not just for themselves, but all of their friends. They, they have all these hangers on who are in it, who are friends with them just for the parties and the fun and all the perks that come with being with the athlete. They spend it on women. They spend it on homes they'll never use. And they wake up one day and it's gone. And that's what happened to this young man. He woke up one morning and it was gone. See, Jesus is under no illusions about the character of these tax collectors and Pharisees that he eats with. Jesus is under no illusion, if we might do this, and we can, about your character. He doesn't pretend that your sin doesn't exist. He fully recognizes that your sinfulness is there. He knows about your greed. He knows about your unrighteous anger. He knows about your hatred towards some peoples or some persons. He knows your sins. As we think about this young man right here, In Old Testament categories, he is sinning with a high hand. That's kind of an odd phrase when you see it in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's that's how it's translated in the old ways. It's a willful sin. It's a bold, intentional, in-your-face kind of sin. And so this young man is not wandering accidentally into sin. This young man is racing to sin. And he knows exactly what he's doing. And he wants to do it. As we think about what the scriptures say in other places, we recognize things like Proverbs 13. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. And whoever heeds reproof is honored. And so this is a young man who is a fool. Poverty and disgrace are coming to him because he has tuned out the instruction of his father. Children, it matters. Galatians 6, we see, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Uh, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This young man is sowing to the flesh, and he's reaping destruction. 
We see in places like Romans 6, verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. Paul was reminding them of the shame that they currently had because of what they had done in the past when they were living for the flesh. So Jesus fully understands what's going on here with the tax collectors and the sinners who are now starting to follow him and he is beginning to dine with. But we also see uh, behind all of this, in in the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes, is a faulty understanding of the kingdom. You see, the the Pharisees believed that the kingdom would be restored by God when God's people would be restored to purity. So they focused on living a holy life in the belief and hope that their righteousness would produce the restoration of the kingdom. That if they were obedient enough, God would get rid of those lousy Romans and they would have a good Jewish king who leads them. Okay? That was the Pharisees' understanding Okay, it's very different from the, the zealots who thought, we gotta kill the Romans. <laughs> okay, that was how we restored the kingdom, we, we killed the Romans. The Pharisees were not as political, they hated the Romans, but they thought that they needed to obey, and then God would remove the threat of the Romans, the presence of the Romans. And so, for one to be a sinner, a tax collector or notorious sinner, is equivalent to being a traitor because you're working against the restoration of the kingdom. So you see, there's more than just they've sinned, but it's also they don't want the kingdom. They're working against the kingdom. And so they, the Pharisees and scribes therefore see Jesus, not just one as one who tolerates these sinful people, but Jesus is joining them in their traitorous deeds. Jesus is joining their rebellion and their traitorous mindset. That's how the Pharisees viewed all of this. This is That's why they're grumbling in, in this instance here. And so we see that Jesus himself reveals himself to be a friend of sinners who, as we're about to see, brings them to repentance. So secondly, let us see the Father. Let's move from the Son to the Father. The Father rejoices in the repentance of the unrighteous. We we see God's redemptive wrath uh, uh, we've talked about in Jonah. You see, uh, uh, when the money runs out, it's not just that the money ran out. A severe famine hit the land. And... If a severe famine hits the land, that that means a couple of things. One of the things that it means is, uh, if you are poor and broke like him, people aren't going to give you out of their excess because there is none. Alms for the poor dry up just like the fields have dried up. 
Not only that, but because of that reality, uh, there's no work. And so we see that he, because he has cut himself off from his family, there is no one to help him. There's no alms for the poor among even the dispersed Jews. He is at the mercy of the dirty Gentiles that he has chosen to live among. And the one job he can finally get is one feeding pigs. And the irony of it all is that the pigs eat better than he does. He wants to eat their slop. There's two aspects of this. One is from the Talmud. Cursed be the man who keeps swine and cursed be the man who teaches his son Greek wisdom. (laughs) As if those are the same. (laughs) Okay. That is something that the Pharisees would have believed and Jesus would have known. And so he, he throws this in there. He's cursed. This, this young man is experiencing the curse for his sin. His sin has brought him to a far country, uh, which as we saw, as we saw from Deuteronomy 4, uh, means the curse of God is upon him. He's been scattered. He chose to be scattered, but he's scattered there. He's been dispersed there. But there's an element of hope there in Deuteronomy 4. Because Deuteronomy 4 talks about that that is where God is going to change a heart and bring a person back. And so we see that Rabbi Aha, A-H-A, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Sounds like the old pop band from the 80s, but I'm not positive. He says that Israel needs caribs to lead them to repentance. And that's how this connects is that these pods are likely carob pods. This son of Israel needs carob pods to lead him to repentance. In other words, he needs to experience the bitter fruit of his choices before he will repent. But repent he does because Jesus says that this, this young man came to himself. And so repentance recognizes, first off, that he sinned against his Father and heaven. But it's not just that he recognizes it. This is not simply about regret. He's not staying in the far country and, and going, Oh, woe is me. I've sinned against my Father. He's going to go home. But he goes home recognizing that he sinned. He didn't just make a mistake and goof. Repentance also recognizes that he forfeited his rights as a son. He has lived in a way that is contrary to what it means to be a son of God. Now remember, maybe you don't, I don't know, Israel was declared to be God's son. And so the whole idea of Torah has this notion of the household rules. He has rejected the household rules. He has not lived in keeping with true sonship. And has forfeited his right 
to be called a son. And he recognizes this because he says that he's willing to be a hired man. See, that's one of the interesting things about that culture, and thankfully we don't have that culture, uh, because part of it is they were slaves. But the slaves lived on the property. He doesn't think he's worth living on the property. That's the idea of the hired man. It's the person, they, they still, they're free. They still work for the landowner, but they have their own place to live. He thinks he's not fit to be a son. He's not fit to be on the property full time. He doesn't belong. He, he's just a hired man, is what he wants to be. He thinks that's all he deserves. And by golly, he's right. But we see in keeping with Deuteronomy 4 that God has stirred him up so that from his place of exile, he begins to seek after the Lord with his, all of his heart. And so we see the fulfillment of those many passages like 1 Chronicles 16, commanding people, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. We see in Psalm 27, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. So there's a sense in which this young man wants to want to be again in the presence of his father, even though he knows he doesn't deserve it. Which is a picture of his wanting to be in the presence of God, though obviously he doesn't deserve it. We see as well Isaiah 25, seek the Lord, uh, may, uh, sorry, 55, which was our uh, word of assurance of pardon today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then, of course, Jeremiah 29, speaking about the people who are in exile. Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Repentance is taking place. Now, I mentioned Jack Miller and his daughter Barbara for a reason. Because Barbara came home. Wrote a book about it. Come Back Barbara is the name of the book. Um, and while we were at General Assembly, I, w- I was spending time with, with my friend, and I was hoping to encourage him. His, his daughter was still gone at that point, and still is gone at this point. Guess who he ran to at General Assembly? Barbara. When he when I heard she was there, I encouraged him. If I remember correctly, maybe I maybe I misremembered like Roger Clemens. I think I told him, "Why don't you go talk to her?" And so she gave him an hour or so to encourage him. father with a broken heart so his repentance 
His returning was stirred up. And He comes back, but there's sort of the question of how will He be greeted when He shows up on the doorstep? The Father was waiting. He recognizes His Son in the distance, and He does what was undignified for a man of His stature, because He's a man who has many servants and has many hired people. And He runs to His Son, and He doesn't punch Him in the face. He doesn't smother him with criticism. He embraces his son and he smothers him with kisses. Because he's so overwhelmed with joy that the son he loves has been brought back to him alive and well. The son that he feared was dead has now been restored to him. And he can't hold in the joy. And so we see a picture of his restoration. He calls out to the, to the servants that he has. He says, bring the robe. It's not just that he gets new clothes. But he gets clothes that you're not supposed to do work in. Manual work. Okay, the son hasn't given his speech yet, but the father has already restored him to his position. He gives him a ring. Another sign of his position. And he gives him sandals for his feet. See, there's no hired man life, you know, for him. There's no life for him on the fringes of the family where we kind of, you know, you look at it, well, yeah, that's the son who ran away and now he kind of comes once in a while to do work here. No. Full restoration for the son. And again, that idea, he was dead or destroyed, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, and now he's been found. And so it's not enough just to restore. There's got to be a celebration. And so he says, get the musicians. Let's do some dancing. And by the way, get the fatted calf. Now, unlike us, or many of us anyway, um, they didn't have meat at every meal. Meat was a special deal. And the specialist deal of all was the fatted calf. Okay? You go to a restaurant, think of the best meat you can possibly get, the really expensive stuff, not that cheap steak for $12. I'm talking that, you know, uh, Chris Ruth Steakhouse kind of steak kind of stuff, you know. Expensive. That's what this was. This was the best of the best of the meals that, that, that you have for the, the most special occasions like a wedding. And he says, get the fatted calf. We're having a party. Jesus here in this parable is once again for the third time, in case you missed it the first two times, stressing God's joyful, restorative response to repentance. It is greater than we can ever imagine. We can't see it. It's something we must believe by faith. But we believe it because Jesus says it three times in this chapter. There is more joy in heaven when sinners come home than you can ever, ever, ever imagine. 
that our Heavenly Father is not stingy, but rather He pours out grace upon grace over returned sinners in Jesus Christ. We don't have a ring and a robe and and sandals. Rather, we're justified. We're declared to be righteous even though we're not righteous and everything but righteous. Grace. The grace of justification. We experience the grace of adoption where we're taken in as His sons and we're given an inheritance along with Jesus. We're co-heirs with Christ. Do we deserve either of those things? No! But they're ours if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, the grace of sanctification by which those He declared righteous, now God works by the power of His Holy Spirit to make righteous. Do we deserve that? No. But we get it anyway. It's a good thing. Not only that, we're glorified. We're exalted. Because we're united with Jesus Christ and He's glorified. And He's exalted. Do we deserve that? No. But we get it anyway. Because it's from grace to grace to grace. Do you see the graciousness of the Father and the restoration of the Son who has repented from His sin? And that's what Jesus wants them to see. Those tax collectors, those sinners that are meeting with me and dining with me have repented. And so, of course, I'm going to bestow grace upon grace with them. I'm not afraid to be seen with them like you are, Pharisees. I'm rejoicing. Thirdly, we see that the self-righteous refuse to rejoice over the return of the lost. It's the self-righteous who refuse to rejoice over the return of the lost. And here we really get to the point of Jesus' parable. It's not so much about the the younger son. It's really about the older son when we recognize verses 1 and 2. The older brother had been working. And as the story goes that Jesus tells, he he comes back from working and he's a little confused. He's like the Grinch. What is this I hear? He hears music. There's dancing. There's... really good barbecue. (laughs) He's confused. Why would there be such an incredible celebration going on? (laughs) What in the world is happening? What have I missed while I've been out there? And he talks to one of the servants and he finds out and instead of going, he's home! He's home? He's angry. He refuses to rejoice over his returning brother. Can you imagine that? 
knowing his father's broken heart, why didn't he seek his brother? Forget the party. Why didn't he seek him in the first place? Isn't that what older brothers are supposed to do? called my friend right before Christmas. And first he said, my daughter's here. And my heart leapt for just a millisecond before he said, getting the last of her stuff. Can I call you back? Yeah. You take care of that. I hope it goes well. They didn't call me back. And he said, I'm sorry, Steve, I couldn't. Can't stop crying. That was the brokenheartedness of the father whose older son apparently ignored it. He didn't say, I love my father so much, I've got to find that son. I gotta bring him home. I gotta plead with him. He didn't do that. I was the youngest in my family, and there were times I wanted my older brothers to be that kind of brother who would protect me from the enemy, who would lead me in how to lead, how to live well, and they actually led me into greater depravity. This brother just kind of ignored the whole thing. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is quite the opposite of this big brother. He is the faithful brother. Now in this parable, there's no one who seeks the lost item. But Jesus is the faithful brother who left home to seek and to save his lost brothers and sisters. That's the part of the story that we don't necessarily see here. This brother, this older son, just like the Pharisees, have ne- had never left home, had never gone to the far country, but we see that in fact his heart is secretly very far away. His animosity thinks the worst of his brother. There's nothing in the text that actually says that he wasted it on prostitutes, but that's where his brother goes. And it's either because he thinks the worst of his brother or that's what he would do if he ran away. We're not sure which of the two it is. But neither option is a good option. Okay? There are some people who look very good on the inside, but they really want to do bad things on the inside. We don't know if that's this particular older brother. But he does say the worst about his brother, and he doesn't own him as his brother. It's your son. What we see here in this parable and many other places is the faulty view of grace that was held by the Pharisees. And oddly enough, it is a view of grace that is held by Mormons. Okay, And that view of grace is prove yourselves worthy by obedience and then you'll get enough grace to kind of fill in the the gaps and the mistakes. That is not the amazing grace that Jesus proclaimed. 
And so, we, in a sense, what we see here is the Pharisees are responding that this brother essentially has not come home because he has not proven himself. He needs to live right for a while. He needs, he needs to be on probation until he shows us that he's reformed. And then we'll let him in. Then we'll restore these things. He's not willing to celebrate because in his mind, his brother hasn't come home yet. There's just this dude who looks like his brother who should be a hired hand. Or a slave. What he doesn't see, what they didn't see, is that it is the righteousness of Christ alone and not ours that brings the restoration of the kingdom that I talked about earlier. Not only that, but it is the righteousness of Christ and not our own that brings about the restoration of particular sinners. The righteousness that comes to us when we entrust ourselves, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just his brother that he has animosity toward. It's also his father. His hatred towards his father is revealed too because he believes that his father owes him. He is bitter. Dad, I deserve better out of you. I've been working my tail off. And you haven't even given me a goat to have fun with my friends. He has a very works-based relationship with his father he did not enjoy his father but instead of running away he was kind of gutting it out until dad died you see pharisees don't seek the lost pharisees don't rejoice over their return precisely because the pharisees don't love them Pharisees don't rejoice over the return of the lost also because they don't love the Father. If we're Christians, we are to remember what Paul says in Romans 15, Therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We rejoice that they, the returning sinner repents and is received by God because we too repented and were received by God. You see, the Pharisees are offended by God's amazing grace and they don't realize how much they need it. One of the few conversations I've had with my father about faith, about religion... It really wasn't a conversation. It was more of a comment he made how he couldn't understand how people think that just because they confess a sin, and in this case to a priest, that they're somehow forgiven. My father had no concept of grace. Well, sorry. He had a pharisaical concept of grace. Return, work hard for a while, and maybe we'll restore you. This parable ends with the father rejoicing and we don't know how the older brother responded. 
Leon Morris notes that it's open-ended, open-ended for a reason. Would the Pharisees repent and join the party, or would they continue to pout outside in their self-righteous glee and pity? He can have that stupid calf. I didn't want it anyway. And that question still bounces back. How are we going to respond to the, the repentance of sinners? Will we rejoice and enter into the Father's joy? Or are we going to place ourselves outside and grump about it? And if we do, it means we don't grasp grace. So I pray for my brother, my friend. Even last night I prayed that his daughter would come home, that his heart would heal. Broken relationships like this uh, reveal the depths of our sin as well as the heights of God's grace. And so whether you're the son who left home or you're the one who works hard to avoid grace, turn from your unbelief and enter the Father's joy because of Christ's work to save sinners of whom you and me are the foremost. Let's pray. Father, a long parable a long sermon. That's because it's so important. Continue to work by Your Spirit. Bring us back to these words of Jesus. Help us to see our own hearts in light of them. And may You bring us to our senses. May You bring us to ourselves that whether we're far, far away or just outside the door, that You would be granting repentance to us. And that we would be rejoicing over the repentance of others as well as our own. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.